For tuning in to the 381st episode of Barbershop Sports Talk with me, your host, Daryl D. Lane, as always, wherever you are, however you may be listening, I'm thank you for making me and this show part of your day, as always, whether it be via Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iRadio, SoundCloud, Pandora, whichever podcasting app or platform you may be listening to me via. Being recorded from Buffalo, New York, per usual, going to have a special guest on, Noah Levick. He covers the Philadelphia 76ers for... NBC Sports, Philadelphia, have a great conversation with them, talk about the Ben Simmons drama, really dive into that, Joel Embiid, his performances, uh, Doc Rivers' coaching, we, we got into a lot of stuff, and I really appreciate Noah spending some time <clears throat> to come on the pod. Now, before we get to that, I'm going to give my shameless plug, as always, first-time listener, thank you, but subscribe and follow right now. Also, share this podcast with your friends and family, whether it be via Reddit threads, Facebook groups, etc., etc., Check on the description below, specifically if you're listening via Spotify. I have every segment of this podcast timestamped. Click on it, and we'll go to that part of the podcast. It's for your convenience. Also, follow me on Twitter at nighttrain underscore lane. Subscribe to my YouTube channel. Just type in Daryl Lane, and you will find that I post three to five minute clips of this podcast right here, as well as my syndicate show outside the shop. And lastly, if you have Apple or iTunes, give me five stars and a great review. And for some odd reason, if you don't like the pod, then don't worry. Just don't say anything. Because you know what your mama told you. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it at all. And before we get to my conversation with Noah, I'm going to give one of my famous Daryl Lane monologues. So some things just don't look right. The $50 in your room, let's say it disappears when only your friend was in the room, kind of explains itself. I know he might be your best friend. You don't want to admit it to yourself. But only you and him were in the room. And you know you didn't take it. One plus one equals two. Not four, not five, not six, not seven, not eight, not nine. When you're texting a girl, you feel that connection. At least you think you do. And then she ghosts you. She stops responding. She doesn't answer your calls. She leaves you on red. That means... No longer interested. No bueno. Find somebody else, buddy. You see, and the relationship could have been going well before before that point. But you see, in life, uh, there are clear signs that it's not going to work. Right? You can really like a girl. Go on a date, and then she tells you, hey, I do crack. Everything else can be perfect, but she says I do crack. You know, hey, this isn't going to work for the long term. Right? That's not my thing. Cardinals in the playoff game. I know they like Cliff Kingsbury, this nice hotshot offensive mind in the mold of McVay, Shanahan, LaFleur, who are all having success with the Packers, 49ers, and Rams, respectively. But the Cardinals under his tenure have underperformed. They get worse as the season goes on, not better. They peak in the beginning, not the end. They got dominated by the Rams. Physically and mentally, they look soft and unprepared. Linebackers were getting split out wide against running backs. And, of course, the running backs were running right by them. 
Why should Cliff Kingsbury stay as the Cardinals coach? Why? Because you hired him? Because he made it to the playoffs once? That's the common thing. He made it to the playoffs. He made it to the playoffs. Well, we saw what he did when he got to the playoffs. We've also seen his track record of what he's done in the regular season. Here are a few things. Like I said, I don't care about the playoff success. It's important, but it's not the end-all, be-all. I care about what you do in those games. I care about the content, not the result. I care about the journey, not the result. You can come to me with $5 million and give it to me, and I'd say, great. But guess what? If you stole all the money, then guess what? I'm not going to be able to keep that money. And it's not always about the results. Sometimes it's about how you got it. It's the process. How did you get there? You can randomly guess 2 plus 2 equals 4. But if you didn't do the math to get it and you just guessed, then it wasn't the right way. It just wasn't. Kyler in the playoff game. Because Cliff Kingsbury, he was a quarterback, former quarterback in college and in the NFL. Offensive coordinator, offensive mind, play caller. Kyler Murray, who's supposed to be developing the number one pick, by the way was missing throws, missing reads, and had awful pocket awareness. That's a direct correlation of the person that was brought in to develop him and bring out the best in Kyler. All those things fall back on Cliff. Since DeAndre Hopkins has been gone, and it's crazy, Kyler's completion percentage down, yards per attempt down, passer rating down, uh, record down. If Kyler in this offense falls off the cliff because of one man, DeAndre Hopkins... Then maybe we should let DeAndre Hopkins pick the head coach. You're supposed to be the offensive mind. You're supposed to be the creative guy. Kyle Shanahan and the 49ers, they lost their top two to three running backs. They, feel, they still find a way to be productive. The LA Rams, they lose Robert Woods. They still find a way to be productive because they're good offensive minds. Josh McDaniels, the Patriots, they don't have an outside threat. They still find a way to be productive because these guys are good OCs. They're good offensive minds. They're good play callers. Cliff Kingsbury is just not. And sometimes I know you want to say, let's give him another chance. But that game, it speaks volumes. It just does. So now I want to get to this. And I was thinking about this, right? Wildcard weekend just happened. Uh, the biggest thing in sports, right? It's not integrity. It's not the championships, it's not the experience, it's the money. In this wildcard weekend, we saw the two and seven seeds, uh, we saw the two seeds dominate the seven seeds, right? And this is all part of the new playoff expansion. The one seed gets a bye, the two no longer gets a bye, and they added on an extra playoff uh, game, that extra team. It's the seventh seed, and they call it Super Wildcard Weekend, right? It wasn't for uh, the integrity, uh, the championships, the experience, for the fans, Let's give, let's give more teams a chance. It was for the money because there's an appetite for football, right? And it'll get 20 million views because people just love football in America. It's our national pastime. It's our national sport. That's why the NFL still has a preseason, even though they talk about player safety. That's why the NFL added an extra regular season game, the 17 games. So they're trying to add on an 18th game. That's why they still play the Pro Bowl. And that's why they had the extra playoff game. It's all about money. 
But here's my thing. I'm all about making qualifications to get into the postseason as hard as possible. Let me put this in a wrestling perspective because I was a college wrestler. I wrestled in high school, right? It was a sport that I was best at in terms of my athletic playing career. And I'm doing a little bit of coaching, by the way, in terms of wrestling right now. I would be in favor for regions. Just to explain this, in New York, and this goes for all sports, by the way, uh, there's sections. So Buffalo is section six, Rochester section five, uh, Long Island is, and Suffolk County is section 11. I'd be in favor of regions. So you combine Buffalo and Rochester, that's Western New York. You combine uh, section 11, which is Suffolk County and Long Island and Nassau County, which is section eight and New York City, which they call the PSAL or whatever and combine that as a region, because it would make it harder. I'm all for making it harder for kids to go to states. I'm all making it harder for people to advance in the postseason. I'm all for finding the best teams. Screw everybody gets in. I think that's stupid. That's why I'm not really a fan of expanding the college football playoffs. I'm just not. The best kids, the best teams should go. Now, let me tell you this. I love it when an 11-5 Patriots team misses the playoffs in 09. It makes getting to the postseason more special. It makes you appreciate it more. The playoff games that they added, the 2-7 matchup, it's been unnecessary. It doesn't help the game. doesn't add more intrigue. People watch it again because it's football. But let's look how the seventh seeds have done. The Saints dominated the Bears last year. That 8-8 eight eight Bears team with Mitch Trubisky, excuse me, that, yeah, 8-8 eight eight Bears with Mitch Trubisky, didn't look very good. The Buccaneers dominated the Eagles. Jalen Hurts is missing throws and Troy Aikman's getting upset on the broadcast. The Chiefs dominated the Steelers. Patrick Holmes dancing around in the pocket, and ben, we saw Ben Roethlisberger get retired on national TV. The Bills versus Colts game last year was close. So here's our data. We've only had one good game. The other three have been utter blowouts, not compelling or competitive games at all. Like I said, the 9-7-1 Steelers with Big Ben, who was awful this year, they got in. I think we could have lived without seeing the Steelers play another game. I don't know about you, but I could have lived without seeing that. The 9-8 Eagles, Jalen Hurts, mediocre passing game. I could live without seeing that in the postseason. I could. These teams weren't particularly good. They just weren't. But here's what it does do. It puts money in the pockets of the NFL owners. It allows for coaches who are mediocre to tell, go to their superiors, a.k.a. the owners, GFs, to say, hey, I made it to the playoffs of the seventh seed. Keep me. Don't fire me. That's what it lets them do. But that's about all. And you know what? Keeping another mediocre coach because they barely snuck their team into the seventh seed allows people to say, Matt Nagy, maybe he should stay. He made it to the playoffs last year. Well, no, the Bears were awful and Mitch Trubisky regressed. He should not uh, have kept his job in Chicago, right? That shouldn't happen. So I can live without that. I can also live without the owner just being greedy and wanting to make more money, more money, more money, more money. I'm out on the extra playoff game. Put it back to the old, good old days. One, two seeds to get buys. Three versus six, four versus five, that's your wild card weekend. It's plenty successful enough. Because after all, football, still the national pastime, no matter what. Cut up next after the break on Barbershop Sports Talk. I'm going to have Noah Levick on the show to talk about everything Philadelphia 76ers, Ben Simmons drama, uh, some Joel Embiid stuff. Cut up next after the break on Barbershop Sports Talk. Thank God the odds against me when I'm coming out strong. I survive. 
Oh, we're back with Barbershop Sports Talk, and we have a very special guest with us, Noah Levick. He covers the Philadelphia 76ers for NBC Sports Philadelphia. How you doing, Noah? Hey, I'm doing well. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate the chance to talk some Sixers basketball, as always. So, first, I got to get this off my chest and talk to you about this. The Ben Simmons drama, can you just explain how much do you know, how this thing is kind of materialized from the beginning of the season to kind of now as we get closer to this trade deadline? I think the bottom line is that both sides of this aren't budging. So Simmons' stance for a while here is that he would like to be traded, and then he has also told the Sixers that he is not mentally ready to play. Uh, Daryl Morey, the Sixers president of basketball operations, has gone on the record saying he will not trade Simmons for anything less than a, quote, difference maker. And so we wait to see exactly what will happen before the February 10th trade deadline. But it does seem increasingly likely from where I'm sitting that Ben Simmons could still be on this roster uh, even after the deadline. As far as how we got there, it's been a long and winding saga. I guess the most notable developments are the Sixers lost to the Atlanta Hawks in the second round of the playoffs. Simmons had a difficult series with a lot of scrutiny on the fact that he wasn't uh, really taking shots in the fourth quarter of those games. Passed up a dunk in, in Game 7 against uh, Atlanta. Requested a trade in the offseason. Uh, and then... He did, uh, after holding out of training camp, uh, show up and participate in a couple of practices, but then was kicked out by uh, Sixers head coach Doc Rivers for refusing to engage. And shortly after that, he told the team uh, he's not mentally ready to participate. And so we've been in this extended standoff where the Sixers have played 40 games and Ben Simmons, a three-time All-Star who's only 25 years old, has played in zero of those games. So, a couple things you said that I think are pretty interesting. First, Ben, you think there's a chance he could still be on the roster after the trade deadline? Like, that's a real possibility? I do. I think um, just in large part because the Sixers' front office uh, is thus far not shifting its stance that a trade that only nets one or two decent players or, or anything less than like all-star caliber talent is going to be insufficient. So I think a lot of it uh, depends on exactly what happens in these negotiations with the teams that do have interest in Simmons. But despite the fact that he's a flawed player and, and that, Everyone around the league is aware of his weaknesses. The Sixers continue to value him very highly, and they consider him one of the league's best and most versatile defenders, and they know how valuable he is uh, for their transition offense, and they still think he's pretty darn good. So, yeah, it is not impossible that that happens, which I know uh, sounds wild on paper, but, hey, we've already gone through 40 regular season games, and he's still on the roster. So, obviously, the, the deadline uh, increases the probability of a deal happening, but I, I do think it is not unrealistic to think that uh, Simmons could, 
you know, technically still be a sixer even post deadline. So let's say theoretically he is still a sixer after the deadline. How does that work? Does that mean he still wouldn't come back to the team? Does that mean this just trickles into the offseason? Like, how does that look? That's the big question. I think, you know, the sense is that, as I said, both sides are pretty firm in where they stand. So it would be fair to call it a shocker if Ben Simmons actually returned to the court as a sixer. But, hey, uh, I I guess, you know, if the playoffs approach and uh, he feels he's in a better place mentally and, uh, you know, maybe maybe things do change there. But I think in all likelihood, uh, in a scenario where Simmons isn't dealt before the deadline, uh, the Sixers just wait until the off season, and then they further dive into that trade market and uh, hope that an offer more to their liking is available. What happens if an offer they're liking never comes around? Eventually, like you know, they're saying like you're only worth as much as what somebody else values you at. Like if the value around the league isn't what the Sixers think, then maybe they need to adjust their stance on what the value is. Exactly, I think that's absolutely fair i think a lot of this is fluid too and dependent on situations with other teams i think on paper the sixers have benefited from the fact that quite a few teams around the league have performed much worse than they expected you look at the sacramento kings the uh, portland trailblazers the indiana pacers you know teams that are potential Simmons destinations and uh, all of them are in worse, you know, quote unquote leverage spots than they were entering the season. So uh, yeah, a lot of it depends on where these other teams are at and um, what they think as far as Simmons's value and, and what he could add to their team. But I think you absolutely make a fair point there. And look, Maury said, we're willing to wait four years, you know, the remaining time on Simmons's contract if we have to. But obviously, something like that would be unprecedented and bizarre would be a mild term to describe just not trading Simmons uh, at all for that length of time. So, yeah, you figure a deal has to happen here at some point, uh, and it's just a question of probably when exactly that will be. Is it really possible for him to wait for four years? Could that really happen? Or is, or is Daryl Moore just posturing when he says that? I think, uh, yeah, four years would, would be one of the weirdest things to ever happen in sports. So, yeah, I don't, I don't think four years is on the table. But as I said, I do think a year uh, wouldn't greatly surprise me. Uh, so that's, that's kind of how I gauge that. But, yeah, obviously, with Maury's comments, uh, he wants to strike a bold stance and let everyone around the league know, you know, you better come to the table with compelling offers or else we're, we're really not going to be persuaded to, to trade Ben Simmons. Do you uh, think so, if yeah, the, that, that's how I read that? Do you think if they were just really resigned to the fact, and let's say they weren't going to trade him and let's say this happened theoretically, hypothetical universe, we're in this two years deep. Does Ben still not play at some point? He'd have to come back then, right? right. Because then he wouldn't be, I, I would sure think so. I mean, 
So I mean, he's a, he's a basketball player. It's his profession, but to be fair, so much of this has been unprecedented. Now, early in the season, Doc Rivers was trying to draw parallels, even to a, a situation in his career where he held out and, and then returned to his team, and, and just trying to make the point that it's not unusual for players to hold out or be unsatisfied with their situations. But this is highly unusual. Uh, you know, Ben Simmons is in his prime and, and theoretically a player who still has room to get so much better. Uh, so you sure feel that basketball of some sort is going to be in his future. Uh, and yet it hasn't been uh, in the 2021-22 season. Is he still getting his salary? How is all that working? Yeah, so that, that's honestly been a little bit murky. Uh, I do know that the Sixers um, on that they withheld like the four, first portion of his salary, so twenty five percent. You know, my understanding is, is it's just been based on is he participating in team act- activities and, and cooperating to their liking, but. There's, of course, a lot of gray area there. Um, so, yeah, I honestly um, am not 100% sure on where all of that stands um, at the moment. Uh, I do know, you know, as I said, the team withheld the first portion of the salary, then started paying him uh, paying him again when he was returning to the facility and uh, you know working out with some of their assistant coaches. Um, and as I said, it's, it's a little bit murky now. Uh, you know, River said last night he has been coming into the facility. Uh, I'm just honestly not sure whether the team considers that sufficient to pay him. I think the big picture there, like the, the financial um, stuff, you know, is, is probably not super significant in that you figure, you know, the sides will come to an amicable solution, you know, once this thing is, is eventually resolved. When the whole Ben Simmons drama started, right, and you mentioned this, the passing of the dunk against the Hawks in that conference semifinals, could you have imagined that it would have gotten to this point? Like, if I told you then that this would get to this point back then, would you have believed it? I probably would have been skeptical. I think, you know, to be honest, the Sixers have have been a team in, in recent years where a lot of drama and weirdness has followed them. You can go back to the Markel Fultz saga or uh, what what we know around here as Burner Kate with uh, former GM Brian Colangelo and Burner Twitter accounts that, that eventually resulted in his resignation. And uh, There's just been a lot of strange stuff around this team. But when it first became apparent that, that Simmons wanted out, you know, I expected at the latest that would happen uh, in the preseason or early in the regular season, and it seems to me quite probable that something could get done, you know, around free agency or the NBA draft. So, yeah, I would um, have had a hard time believing you if you'd said we'd be sitting here in November uh, with this thing still not resolved. How close was that Ben Simmons Harden deal to actually happening? I mean, I think all indications are are it was quite close. Uh, 
of course, you know, the Sixers were, were one of the teams vying for Harden, and we know Daryl Morey immensely values Harden's talent, you know, having um, made a, a great blockbuster trade to get him before uh, for Houston. And I think just Morey overall, he loves star players, and he recognizes that to win in the NBA, you need stars. And he does understand that it would be so, so huge for the Sixers to get a legit second star next to Joel Embiid, who you know is an MVP-level sort of player at this point. So, uh, yeah, all indications are that you know there were very intense uh, discussions and that, that the Sixers were right in that mix. And, um, you know, it, it was it was close to happening for sure. And, you know, one indication of that, too, is Rivers was uh, pretty candid with us in, in saying that he did talk with Ben Simmons after that. And, and they had a discussion about about um, those, those trade negotiations and, and Simmons' future with the team um, and I, I think it was an intense, intense time for everyone. Uh, so, yeah, it certainly seemed like that was close. And, of, of course, the world where James Harden is a sixer is, um, is interesting to imagine and, and much different from where we're sitting right now. Do you think part of it, too, do you think that was the start of the fracture in Philly a little bit? Because maybe he was feeling like, you know, this team has always kind of betrayed me. They never believed in me. Or do you think it was the Atlanta Hawks moment? I don't think uh, the Harden stuff helped, for sure. I think there's been a lot leading to where we are today. Uh, yeah, I mean, there, you know, of course, a bunch of stuff is, is leaked out there by parties with interest in portraying their side a, a certain way. I know there were multiple reports indicating that Simmons was not happy that when Doc Rivers was asked post-game whether Simmons can be a championship point guard, his answer was essentially, I don't know. I thought that was an honest and fair response. Uh, and I think, you know, there, there's even been a reporting, I believe, from the, the Athletic that Simmons likes the idea of being more of a primary star and having his own, his own team as opposed to being a second fiddle to Joel Embiid. Uh, I think anytime you get to this point, there's a lot of factors. You know, there's not just one singular thing uh, that is responsible for a player player wanting out. So you mentioned this. Maury wants an impact player. What exactly does that mean? What value is an impact player? Like when he says impact player, who is said player? So I think there are some no-brainers that would fit that criteria who could... Damian Lillard. On paper, be on the table. Damian Lillard, um, Bradley Beal, etc. And then I think there there's a tier down where you know of, of course the Sixers would have some interest. Uh, I, I think you know CJ McCollum is probably a borderline sort of player if we're talking about difference maker. And then there are some players where you know realistically they're they're just not good enough. Uh, if you're talking about a difference maker, uh, you know, if you're if you're thinking about a like a John Collins, like to, you know, who's who's been reported, you know, as a, as someone who is who is now available in trade talks, a uh, very good player, but probably not quite in that top twenty five, top thirty All Star level. So yeah, I think um, 
it's certainly a word that you can define however you want, but it, it seems like from the Sixers perspective, anyone who's an all-star, yeah, they probably meet the criteria. Someone like uh, McCollum, who's, you know, narrowly missed out on some all-star games, um, you know, maybe they'd be close, but probably not. Like th- this team would really like to get an all-star um, because, hey, Ben Simmons is a three-time all-star and he's only 25 and uh, they feel it's very important to get a legit star player uh, next to a view. So even like a Brandon Ingram type, that would probably suffice, right? You'd think he'd be in that mix, yeah. Um, I think part of what's interesting in considering these many hypotheticals is just age and the ability to win in the postseason. And obviously, I think those variables would be question marks with Ingram or, or even question marks with um, some of these, these guys on the Kings, you know, Fox and Halliburton, who are young and, and do not have postseason experience because... The ultimate goal here is to maximize Embiid's prime, right? He's, he's 27 years old. He's playing the best basketball of his career. Uh, and you want a player who can get the Sixers over the hump and improve them from a team that loses in the second round to a team that's uh, a championship contender. So I think those are factors uh, working against a player like Ingram, a player like Halliburton. Um, but in my book, uh, yeah, it's it's valid to at least consider them in that difference maker discussion. Uh, it's just a question of you know whether the Sixers front office feels the same way, and I think uh, we'll ultimately learn a lot more about that just based on what it, what they do here. Um, but uh, you know we shall see. Uh, I, you know, but from where I'm sitting, uh, Maury has set a high bar here, and the best evidence of that again is that we've played 40 games and he hasn't budged so would it be Tyrese and Fox would it be both of them um I would not expect that that Sacramento would would be willing to give up both um you know I think on paper what would probably be be more viable for both teams would be uh you know Halliburton and and Heald and uh, you know, maybe maybe a draft pick or, or something along those lines. But, of course, the Kings, like, like most NBA teams, value their young talent very highly. Uh, so, you know, it's maybe maybe there's a, a middle ground that, that these teams can find. Uh, and, and with a lot of these you know, Simmons hypotheticals also, we have to consider that, you know, that there's a strong possibility that, you know, there could be multiple teams involved that might not just be a two-team deal. Um, I would not expect that that Sacramento would be willing to part with both uh, Fox and Halliburton, but uh, I think you know either player is intriguing. I think Halliburton is a stronger fit in theory for the Sixers uh, because you can more likely than not play him next to Tyrese Maxey, and he can complement um, you know Maxey well because of his, his shooting ability and, and his playmaking ability, um, but. Yeah, that, that's how I would, would see it uh, with the Kings. Is there possible? I know you said impact player, but let's say this. When the Carmelo Anthony's very went down from Denver to New York like almost a decade ago, Denver got back like Daniel Gallinari, Wilson Chandler. They, they got a bunch of like not 
all-star guys, but a bunch of really good, like about five or six, like just good basketball players. Is there anything, maybe something like that to a lesser extent could be appealing to Daryl Morey where it's like, okay, we get about three to four just guys that can just contribute? Yeah, not not to dismiss uh, the point you make, which which I think is fair enough, but I think that's the exact opposite of what Maury's looking for. I think he doesn't want role players. He doesn't want nice pieces. He wants stars, uh, and that's that's his bottom line. And, and I think just looking at this from the Sixers' perspective, you know, the goal is to stop losing in the first or second round. Uh, and they have to get better to do that. You know, they can't come out of this deal picking up a few decent pieces uh, that they have to meaningfully improve. Now, as you've brought up, the, the question of whether that's actually doable and whether Ben Simmons' value is actually high enough, you know, that's that's difficult to weigh here. But as far as what the Sixers should be aiming to do and what they are aiming to do, it's to improve their roster uh, substantially. Is there any chance they could ship Ben off with a Tobias? So, reportedly, they have, have been exploring that option um, and have, you know, gauged teams' interests in packages that include both Simmons and Harris. From where I'm sitting, it is not probable because Tobias Harris has an awfully hefty contract. You know, he signed a five-year, $180 million deal with the Sixers, and his level of play uh, does not merit what he's being paid. So I personally find it hard to envision that another team would be willing to take on that contract. But hey, the Sixers um, apparently are, are seeing whether that's that's possible. I, I, just, I just don't see it happening, but... Hey, maybe they'll surprise us. Uh, I just, I just don't see it though. Does Embiid at any point in time get tired of like the is Ben Simmons playing? Is he not? When are they going to trade him? Or is he not? Because you mentioned he's in the prime of his career and he needs to win now. He doesn't have time for the Daryl Morey posturing of hey, four years we can wait. In four years, uh, Joel Embiid's going to be looking very different. My impression is that that actually hasn't been much of an issue. I think when we were in this real circus atmosphere during training camp, and, and as I mentioned, you know, when Simmons was practicing with the team but not exactly engaging fully, sure, all, all the players were probably a little perturbed at a minimum by all the buzz around Simmons and all the drama, but I think since then he's just been playing basketball and doing that at a very high level, and his focus and leadership have been elevated this year. Uh, he's had you know, plenty of teammates who, who have praised him for just being more active as a leader and, and being more vocal and, and telling his teammates what they've got to do. And I think Embiid also has embraced on the court that his role has expanded even further because the Sixers have obviously lost a ball handler in Simmons, so... And Bede is doing more of that, um, both in transition and in the half court. And he's thrived in part because his ball handling uh, has improved and his passing has improved. And uh, I, I think that he's kind of seeing the bright side of a lot of this and uh, doing the best he can given the circumstances. Uh, so my impression is obviously he would prefer 
the Sixers to have a better roster around him right now, but he's putting faith in Maury to, to do what's right. Uh, and he's trying to carry the Sixers to victories, which, hey, as of late, he's been doing a lot of. Uh, Indeed has scored 30 or more points in eight straight games, which matched uh, Will Chamberlain and Allen Iverson for the Sixers franchise record. And uh, he's the reason that the Sixers, uh, I think, you know, still can feel somewhat hopeful about their future. So what I want to do is I want to take a quick break, and then kind of next to the break on Barbershop Sports Talk, we're going to talk a little bit more about some 76ers basketball. Kind of next to the break on Barbershop Sports Talk. So we're back with Barbershop Sports Talk. We still have Noah Levick with us. So Noah, Joel Embiid, and you mentioned this. 30 plus points, 8 straight games. Just describe the level Joel Embiid is playing at right now. I think the simplest way to describe it is we're watching a future Hall of Famer. From the first time I saw him play, I thought of Hakeem Olajuwon. I think there are similarities there. Not coincidentally, Embiid studied Hakeem tapes growing up when he first picked up basketball. And I think part of what's so fascinating with Joel Embiid is... He's tried to incorporate bits and pieces from the all-time greats into his game. So last season, him and his trainer, Drew Handelin, studied uh, Dirk Nowitzki tape to try to add some of the Nowitzki fadeaways and and one-legged shots to his game. And Embiid has talked this year about how he looked at tape of Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan to see how they handled the ball from the mid post and uh, to try to improve his ball handling. So he's, he's kind of taken this hybrid approach um, with, with how he plays the sport. And yet I'm thinking 10, 15 years down the line, we're, we're going to have young players studying Joel Embiid. I, I think the talent is that good. And the thought in the background with Embiid is just always, Okay, can he can he stay healthy and and can he have a long career? Because undeniably, he's missed a bunch of games due to injuries and uh, has not been super reliable just in terms of his availability. But if he stays healthy, uh, we are in my mind looking at an all-time great player. We're looking at a Hall of Fame player, and uh, he's he's special. There's no way around it. Where was the first time you saw him play? No, so I, I'm just talking uh, when he first played for the Sixers. I okay. his first two years, he was he was out with an injury, um, you know, injured injured foot. Um, obviously, he was impressive at Kansas, but immediately his rookie year with the Sixers, uh, just some of the fluidity in his movement, and then of course certain moves like the the Hakeem dream shake and uh, some of the nimble footwork in the post. You just think, wow, this guy's a lot of similarities. I, and he just systematically addressed a lot of the weaknesses in his game, 
to ascend to this point where he's now one of the best players in the sport. The passing out of double teams um, is something he's ha- he's put a lot of work into. Um, and, of course, his jump shooting, both from the mid-range uh, and three-point line, uh, is better than the average seven-footer. Um, so a lot, lot of skill here. Um, and he wants to win a championship in Philadelphia. And, you know, the city has been waiting for one uh, for a very long time. Hasn't happened since uh, the Dr. J, J, Dr. J days in, in 1983. Where do you think he ranks in the hierarchy of the league? Uh, to me, he's a top five or six player. Uh, I think, you know, a lot of it just depends on your preferences and what kind of style you like. I think Steph Curry, LeBron, um, Giannis, Jokic, Embiid, it's probably not a bad, like, top top five uh, in the, the NBA right now. Um, I think Embiid, when he's at his best, I'm not sure that there's anyone better. Um, but, of course, consistency and just being able to string healthy games together, you know, ha- has always been a concern with Embiid. Um, but he's a two-way force, uh, you know, because in addition, in addition to... All the offensive ability that that we just covered, uh, he's a, he's an incredible rim protector, and he's far more versatile again than the ter- typical person his size. He handles himself awfully well when he's switched off on, onto guards, and he can mix things up and pick and roll coverage. And um, he he really is a, is a do it all player at this point. How much more development do you think there is to go? Like, do you think this is the optimized version of Embiid? Do you think there's another peak or another level for him to go up? Or do you think this is kind of how good he is? I think maybe there's a little more little more in there, um, in part because he didn't start playing basketball until he was a teenager, and in part because he has developed so rapidly and he has done a great job of like, maximizing his off-seasons and recognizing okay, this was the biggest issue for me in the playoffs last year. Now let's work on it and, and figure out how to address that. Um, but I, I struggle to think of any areas at this point where he has a, a glaring weakness. I, I think some of the lingering lingering um, issues in his game were the turnovers, and he has a career-low turnover rate this year. And uh, not even that it was a problem, but just his ability to handle the ball and make plays in transition. And now he started doing that. I think maybe we see him um, fine tune his game a little bit. Um, but as far as adding some new skill, I, I you know, have a hard time thinking of, of what that might even be. How much, when do you think, because obviously he's 27, right? Uh, He's, he's a bigger guy. Obviously, there's the injury history. How many more prime and beat years do we do you think we have left? Yeah, I think I think part of that depends on on how you define prime. Of course, Doc Rivers has has compared him to Hakeem, as we mentioned, and then also Patrick Ewing. And you look at those two players' careers; they still were legitimate all stars when they were 33, 34 years old. It wouldn't surprise me if Embiid follows a similar trajectory 
uh, in part because while he is, of course, very agile for his size and a great athlete, I don't think his game is predicated entirely on athleticism. He draws a lot of free throws just through being a, a cunning and skilled player, and I think a lot of those uh, traits will age well uh, as he gets older. Um, but yeah, as far as his prime, uh, probably realistically, maybe maybe he's got two or three more years here, just looking at how players um, tend to progress in the sport. Um, and, and I think just the hope is, of course, that he avoids anything catastrophic on the injury front. I will say he's done far better in recent years in controlling with what's within his power. You know, conditioning and diet and just being in shape. Uh, he wasn't great at that stuff early in his career, and now um, it's not—it's not an issue. He doesn't—he doesn't fade in the fourth quarters of games. He's—he's um, he's totally fine cardio-wise and all of that. Um, but he's had some bad luck. Like last year, um, he gets hurt in the first round against Washington, suffers a small meniscus tear, and you know that's that's just extremely unfortunate. And all you can do is hope that um, his luck gets a little better. You talk about how impactful Tyrese Maxey's play has been with Ben being out. Yeah, Mac- Maxey's been. Uh, certainly a bright spot for the Sixers. Um, he has also had an up-and-down year because, like I believe a dozen Sixers at this point, he has been in health and safety protocols. Uh, he just missed four games. Uh, he told us he, he didn't have any symptoms and you know felt great uh, and returned, returned to the action last night in the Sixers, lost to the Hornets. But the big picture of Maxi's season is highly encouraging. Uh, I think the Sixers really were just looking for someone who could play that point guard role and uh, give them decent production in Simmons' absence, but Maxie's been a lot more than that. Um, He is tremendous at attacking the rim and and putting pressure on defenses, and uh, just as a player, too, who, who loves big moments and you know, isn't shy, uh, isn't shy about taking charge when uh, the Sixers need someone to create a shot or, or make something happen. Uh, he's still learning. He's, he's still only 21 years old. Um, but I, I think, like Embiid, there, there's a lot to indicate that he's a fast learner. Uh, this season in particular, I've been impressed with his defensive uh, strides. I, I think he's figured out a lot of the nuances um, of NBA defense and how to navigate over and around ball screens and how to guard some of the stars he's playing, like like Damian Willard, like Trey Young. Uh, so Maxi isn't a perfect player, you know, no no second year guy is, but um, he he has been really, really good for the Sixers. How much of a pleasant surprise was this play to you? Because I mean, coming in, I mean, what was he giving you? Like sixteen and six, something like that? That's kinda for a guy who wasn't getting a super amount of burn last year, I mean, that's kind of a bright spot. Like, Indeed. Uh, it, like, uh, yeah, it was it was a surprise to me. Uh, um, I thought he would be better than his rookie year. Uh, he, is, he is known as being uh, an immensely hard worker, someone who the Sixers, you know, sometimes have to uh, basically kick out of the gym and, you know, stress the importance of, you know, you got to rest sometimes. Uh, so I, I know he works on his game and 
and that he would enter year two a better player. Uh, he shot the three better than I expected. He was only at 30% his rookie year and, and has bumped up that percentage considerably. Um, and, and I thought he would do okay in this spot where, where he was taking over the starting point guard role, but absolutely, I, I did not envision him starring in a lot of games and um, making making these dramatic sort of strides. The 76ers, in terms of their playoff struggles, what do you think has been the biggest reason that this team has struggled in the playoffs? Hmm. Uh, I think not Not to you know, give them a cop-out or, or an excuse, but I think the injuries have been a big deal. We mentioned Joel Embiid's meniscus tear last postseason, and then in the NBA bubble, Ben Simmons uh, missed the playoffs because of the left knee injury. The team has been built around two All-Stars, and they haven't had two fully healthy All-Stars. Uh, and then their, their first go-round in the playoffs in 2017-18, uh, they were a very young, young team. I don't think anyone expected them to make a deep run. Uh, and in 2018-19, rather, uh, they were excruciatingly close on that team uh, with Jimmy Butler. Uh, of course, Kawhi Leonard hit the famous or, or infamous, depending on where you're sitting, quadruple bouncer to win Game 7 of that second-round series. So I think they've had tough luck. Uh, I think, of course, the much-scrutinized Embiid-Simmons pairing is imperfect and... Perhaps those guys don't, you know, mesh uh, optimally on the court, but I still think overall uh, the Sixers with better luck would have at least, like, had a conference finals appearance or two uh, by now. And then, of course, Simmons, as everyone knows, uh, his game has been better suited for the regular season than the postseason. Uh, he came up small in the playoffs last year, and uh, we all knew he was a subpar free throw shooter, but he dipped off dramatically um, and shot, you know, 34 uh, percent in that Hawk series, which uh, ended up, you know, costing the Sixers a series that I, you know, they should have won. I mean, they were a better better team than the Hawks, but uh, did not find a way to get over the hump, and now major change looms. How much do you think Doc Rivers, how much blame does Doc deserve for that series, the 76, uh, the Hawks series? Deserves a bit. I, I don't think he coached a great series. I think something that was worrying heading into the playoffs was his penchant for playing all bench or mostly bench lineups, and he didn't ditch that in important games, and, and it cost the Sixers uh, I also think leaning on Dwight Howard, even in matchups where Howard wasn't playing well and was a net negative for the Sixers, ended up being costly. Some of that, of course, you can you know place at Daryl Morey and, and the way he constructed the roster and, and not making significant trade deadline upgrades. You know, the Sixers' only real move at the deadline was uh, George Hill, which which did not pan out. But uh, I didn't think I didn't think Rivers coached a great series. But 
Uh, of course, I, I think if you're looking for who's culpable for the Sixers losing the series, uh, Ben Simmons is high in the list, and then even Joel Embiid, uh, you know, playing on that torn meniscus, um, did not come through the way the Sixers needed him to in the second half and fourth quarters of a lot of those games. I believe it was Game Four that he was something like 0 for 12 in the second half. So. Of course, if your best player is turning in that kind of performance, it's going to be difficult to win. But it was just such a bizarre and mystifying series all around, I think. It's just so rare that you see a team blow an 18-point lead and then blow a 26-point lead and have a chance to win Game 7 and then lose at home where they've been so dominant all year. So it's a series, I think, that continues to sting. Do you think Ben Simmons will ever get to the point, whether he remains in Philadelphia or not, where he'll be able to at least take shots? <laughs> um, I think there's reason to be a little skeptical now. Um, or, or is Ben just as what he is? Like, five years from now, wherever Ben is, Ben could be in Minnesota, and Ben's going to be doing the same thing. Yeah, I, I think maybe there's, maybe there's a middle ground where he's, uh, he's at least gotten over some of these mental performance hurdles and is less hesitant to occasionally do something that he's not as good at. But, you know, my my sense from covering him is, is that a lot of this has just been about, okay, I'm so great at so many parts of the sport. Why would I do something that I'm not good at and that's not efficient basketball. You know, I think ultimately he's, he's seen it as uh, mid-range jump shots aren't efficient for many players. They're certainly not efficient for me. So, you know, why would I take mid-range shots or, or why would I take threes if I'm not good at them? Obviously, the, the no-brainer question there is, well, why why haven't you gotten better at that? Why haven't you, you know, made the off-season sort of development that Joel Embiid has. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think at this point it is it is fair to wonder whether Simmons will ever uh, change on the jump shot front. I, I think with the free throws, uh, obviously the male component is so huge there, and it's tough to predict exactly whether he will be able to figure that out. I, I mean, I know I asked him, you know, at, at one point in that series – why he thought the foul shooting had dropped off so much because before the All-Star break, he was at 67% last year, which, okay, it's not good for an average player, but for Ben Simmons, that number actually represented a minor improvement. And he said just, you know, I don't know, I, I've, it's, but it's on me and I've, I've got to figure it out. Uh, so who, who knows what's going to happen with his foul shooting or, or his... Um, confidence in general about his ability to do the parts of the game that he's not most strong at. Because it's interesting, too. You look at a guy like Lonzo Ball, who he's not as good as Ben, but he's a guy that, you know, coming out could do a lot of different things. He can defend, he can pass, he can rebound. There's a lot of good things Lonzo Ball can do, and Lonzo couldn't shoot. And Lonzo's worked very hard to rework his shot. He's become a passable three-point shooter. Indeed. uh, I think Ben Simmons... uh, you know, would, would be thrilled to get to that level, um, but it doesn't look very realistic right now. 
And again, for me, I just come back to it's both a physical slash form related issue and also a mental issue. You know, with the free throws, he proved that he was physically capable of being an adequate free throw shooter. He shot 67% before the playoffs. And then that plummeted to, you know, 33, 34% in the postseason when the spotlight was on. So uh, to me, that that's all indicative of mentally he, he's got to figure some stuff out. And um, apparently that that is tricky, um, you know, and, and he's just he just hasn't cleared that hurdle yet. What should be the goal of the 76ers this postseason? Uh, you know, all rides on all rides on what happens with Simmons. Um, so I, I can't really give you a great answer uh, outside of that. I think, like, where the team sits right now, I think they can win a playoff series. I, I, I'm not so sure they can get further than that. I think even if Embiid sustains this level and is healthy... It's just tough to see the Sixers uh, being good enough to win a seven-game series against the OE teams in the East, uh, like the Nets and the Bucks and the Bulls. Now, that said, this is an especially volatile and unpredictable NBA season because... Um, Health and safety protocols. <laughs> yeah, the impact of COVID and you know the Nets have, have Kyrie Irving, as of now, only eligible to play in half their games, so... There's a lot of um, unique variables there to consider, but you know, as far as what's most likely for a Sixers team that makes no moves um, before the deadline, I think probably a second-round exit would, would be the most probable outcome. Um, but, of course, there's, there's the possibility that all this uh, changes seismically uh, if they indeed do deal, deal Ben Simmons before February 10th. And you, when you mentioned Brooklyn, I'm curious to know your thoughts on this. How real was the Kyrie thing ever? You think that was ever a conversation for Kyrie for Ben? Because I feel like that would work perfectly because then they get Kyrie, they get a guy who's clutching the fourth quarter, you can play without the ball, you can do all these different things. Yeah, I mean, my, my sense was nothing was ever ever imminent there. Um, I haven't, haven't seen or heard anything that would suggest otherwise. Uh, I, I think part of it is... The Nets uh, made an, an investment in Kyrie, and they wanted to see that through. And um, I guess you know initially that their hope was that they could convince him to return and get vaccinated, and, and then obviously they shifted and, and are now okay with him being a part-time player. But uh, yeah, from the Brooklyn side of things. Um, I would have been very surprised if the willingness was there to give up that early on a player as, as great as Kyrie Irving. So lastly, what I want to ask you is this. In your time covering the 76ers, do you have a funny or interesting story? Hmm, there, there are a lot, a lot that comes to mind. A lot of days covering the Sixers where something, something stunning hits. Um, of course... One of the one of the first things I think of it is when the NBA season was suspended on March 11th, and uh, that's a real moment. Um, I think, yeah, what, what I'll point to in, in a little more uh, positive light is 
Uh, the night that Joel Embiid scored his career-high 50 points um, last February against the Bulls, I felt privileged to be one of the people in the arena uh, on a night when fans weren't allowed to attend the games. And it was cool because Embiid, he hits this clutch um, shot when he's, he's double-teamed, two defenders basically draped on him, and nails this jumper to basically clinch the win for the Sixers and he you know lifts his arms up and gestures to a crowd that isn't there uh, and I just thought that was such a such a neat image obviously sad that you know these fans that love and be couldn't be there because of a pandemic that has affected so many people but uh, just appreciating, like, this is a player who is special and, and connects with a lot of people and has extraordinary talent, and, um, hey, I'm getting to watch him and covering him, and, you know, I'm, I'm one of a very small number of people in this arena tonight. So, uh, yeah, if I had to pick a memory, uh, let's go with that one. Noah, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast, man. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And once again, I want to thank Noah Levick for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate it. And I want to thank all of you for tuning into this episode. The 381st episode of Barbershop Sports Talk.